0: Would you stand with me as we read from Luke chapter 12. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast. So that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service. And have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, My master is delayed in coming, and begins to beat the male and female servants, and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating everyone to whom much was given of him much will be required and from him to whom they entrusted much they will demand the more
1: the word of the lord how are you at waiting you ever found yourself in a situation where you you astutely study the checkout lines, say, at the supermarket. And you figure out which one you think is both moving the fastest, because the checker is very competent, but also the one that has the least number of items in line. And so you maneuver to get in that line, and you wait patiently. But the person in front of you pulls out at the last minute 400 coupons. <laughs> and they, the person at the checkout throws on the light, because they're going to switch people out. They've got to count the drawer real quick. And a new person's coming in and suddenly what you deem to be the shortest line becomes the longest line in the store. And you are in a hurry to get somewhere. And in that moment, how do you wait? Right? What's your spirit? And how's your heart? There's an interesting aspect to Christianity which is uh, our religion, our faith is about waiting. We've been waiting a very long time for Jesus to come back. And so... To consider these, uh, these promises, these uh, challenges that Jesus offers that, uh, you know, I'm coming back. You don't know when. Be ready. It makes us think about waiting. It's something that we have to consider. How do we wait? How do you wait? Not long ago, uh, Houston Airport had a very large problem. They uh, had become notorious for delays in baggage claims. And so the executives knew that this would hurt business, and so they said, how are we going to deal with this problem? Well, they examined it, and what they did was hire a bunch of uh, more baggage people. So the, the weight came down significantly, and they got the weight down to about eight minutes, which is industry standard. And so they thought, we've solved the problem. People aren't waiting that long for their bags. But oddly, the complaints did not abate. People continued to complain just as much. This confused the executives. They they uh, dialogued with some uh, professionals or experts in the field to try to figure out what was happening. And as they examined the problem, they realized that uh, it takes about a minute from a person to go from the arriving gate to baggage claim. And there they would wait for six or seven minutes with nothing to do, waiting for their baggage to come out onto the, uh, the beltway. So they continued to dialogue over this problem, and they realized that uh, getting a, a shorter wait wasn't very realistic. wasn't even actually that humanly possible. So what they did was they started to have uh, planes arrive farther from the main terminal. They put them on the outer gates, and they started to have the baggage come up in baggage claims that were far away from the arriving gate. Right? In other words, they moved the passenger from the baggage. The result was a passenger would now have to walk about six or seven minutes to get to baggage claim, And once they were there, they would wait only one or two minutes for their actual bags. Complaints went virtually to zero. Now think about that. The wait time, the the time between you getting off the plane and you having your bag in your hand had not changed. Only the experience of waiting had changed, in which you are now filling your time walking rather than waiting for the carousel to turn on and the bag to arrive. This is part of, you know, there's an entire field uh, now, which is the psychology of waiting, which is a big deal, because for so many things, uh, waiting is involved. And businesses are very interested in keeping you happy, even though you're waiting. And it's not a very old field. It actually came about uh, around the middle of uh, the last century, which high-rise buildings were going up quickly after World War II, uh, in part enabled by elevator uh, technology. and as these high-rises were going up in cities around the country, weights to get up to your, your, the place where you lived increased, right? as people were queuing up for elevators. So they said, well, it's, we don't have the technology to build super-fast elevators, and it's not cost-effective to put more elevators into the building. So what are we going to do? And one of the pioneers of this field uh, said, I know exactly what we're going to do. And they thought he was crazy at the time, but he put mirrors in elevators and in elevator lobbies. Again, complaints went virtually to zero, because apparently, as long as we can look at ourselves, or we can sneak peeks at other people standing around us, we don't mind waiting, right? The time is occupied, and we drink deeply from the well of narcissism, so that uh, that handles our wait. But the point is that it's not simply the wait, right, that we're speaking of, but it's how we experience or engage that weight, that affects our experience uh, uh, of the weight. And this is what uh, we want to particularly glean or pay attention to as we consider Jesus' teaching on waiting, right? On being prepared for his return. What does it mean to wait well? Uh, what does it look like to wait poorly? How do we know the difference? And why should we be intent on waiting well? Right? What is, what's in it for us, so to speak? These are the questions we want to take up uh, this morning as we jump into our passage. So the first The first notion here is is really the notion of all three parables, which is that you are expected to be ready. This is the thrust of what Jesus is saying. Uh, He tells three stories, three parables, but they really all have the same point. Number one is a master goes to a wedding feast. In the ancient world, a wedding feast, and in many places today, a wedding feast could last days, if not a week. And so you don't know when it's going to be over. Probably when the wine runs out. And then the master comes home. And Jesus is saying, you better be ready for the return of the Master. You don't know when it's going to happen. Parable 2 is uh, a little surprising. Jesus compares himself to a thief in the night. But his point is, if you knew what hour the thief was coming in the night, right, in the ancient world, the thief probably would dig through your soft, kind of uh, mud clay wall in your house and break into your house. If you knew what hour he was coming, you'd be standing there waiting for him. Right? You wouldn't go to sleep. You wouldn't leave the house. You'd be prepared. The third story is the same point. Master goes away on a journey, uh, and some of the servants are faithful, but uh, some uh, misbehave and act in a way that doesn't honor the master, and then he comes back and he comes in judgment, and there will be repercussions. You'll be held accountable for how you act uh, while the master is gone. And ultimately, Jesus says to whom much is given, much is required. Right, the overall thrust is you are responsible for what you do in this wait. You're going to be held responsible. And so the way to be responsible is to be ready for when Jesus uh, returns. We could summarize all three stories with, say, verse 35. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home. Or verse 37, blessed are those servants whom their master finds awake when he comes. But whenever we talk about the coming, the return of Jesus, there's... um, there's something that we have to do business with because I think it, uh, it lurks in the background many times. And it's this notion that it's almost a reaction that we might have if we know the gospel as well, which is seriously, All right? be ready. Okay, we've been ready for a long time, a very long time. You know, and uh, Jesus' uh, command to be ready may almost feel like the little boy who cried wolf, right? He cries wolf so many times and the wolf doesn't show up. You think, well, I'm not going to be that ready. You think, well, Jesus said he was coming back and at times even sounded as if he was coming back very soon, how long are we going to have to wait until he comes back? In fact, in Mark 13.30, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And he's speaking about the end of time just prior to that. And in Matthew 10.23, Jesus says, When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. From one perspective, it sounds very much like Jesus expected to be back right, in that generation in a short period of time. The New Testament writers at various places sound this way as well. And so we might wrestle with how it was, you know, people ask, was Jesus wrong? And people who attack Christianity, this is, they love to hit what this, they consider to be a softball. You know, Jesus, God in the flesh himself, didn't know when he was coming back and got it wrong, so why would you be expectant that he's actually going to come back? Now, a number of things could be said here. Um, First of all, you know, this idea of Jesus waiting. I'm tempted to say, you know, Jesus, why didn't you wrap everything up at your death and resurrection? And part of me, uh, I think that's a good question. I'm not sure I have an answer to that question. But I know that if he did, none of us would be here. Right? So lamenting his waiting in that regard is a little bit moot. Now, we could also say that time for God is very different. He's eternal. He exists outside of time. And even though He sometimes communicates to us with time, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's how things are functioning, right? He's simply speaking in a language that we can understand. But there's a third aspect, particularly to prophecy, that's very important to understand and sometimes uh, gets skewed because we, we tend to be informed about one kind of idea in prophecy in the Old Testament, which comes out of Deuteronomy, which says... Uh, You know, if this person says something's going to happen and it doesn't happen, stone them. That's the test of of true prophecy. There's another thread or aspect, might be a better word, the prophecy in the Old Testament, which is that God will say things and the intent isn't necessarily to simply reveal the future. It is to affect behavior. It is to call people to repentance, to encourage obedience, We see this in a number of places. Jeremiah 18 is one of the best. God says uh, to the people who are frustrated with him, he says, am I not the potter? Are you not the clay? Can I not say to a nation, I, um, I, I visit you in judgment. You're going to be punished. And if they repent, can I not show mercy to them? And he says, on the other hand, can I not choose a nation and say, I will build you up. I will make you a great place. And if they turn to sin can I not then exercise judgment against them? In other words, God's saying the things that I may proclaim about a place are intended to bring about certain qualities of holiness in that place. And if that doesn't happen, then the the prophecy or the execution of my will in time and space may change. This is why when you look at Jonah, God says, go to Nineveh, pronounce judgment. Jonah says, no, I don't want to. Why doesn't he want to? He says, if I go and pronounce your judgment, I'm afraid that they're going to repent. Not only am I afraid that they're going to repent, I'm afraid that if they repent, you're going to show them mercy. And I would rather Nineveh be destroyed. Right? Jonah says, I'm worried that they're actually going to respond at your sentence of judgment. You see it when David right, fasts on behalf of his child, the child that he has with Bathsheba, who is sentenced to death. And they, the child does not get saved. Time passes by. He, gets, he cleans himself up and returns to eating. His servants can't figure out what he's doing. He said, well, while the child was alive, I might have appealed on God's mercy. God may have changed his mind and spared the child. This is why I appealed to him in this way. So the aspect of prophecy that we're pointing up is this notion that God's either a declaration of blessing or a declaration of judgment is intended to affect the holiness of his people. And so when we start to wrestle with the delay, Right? And thinking of it in that way, we also need to remember that the promise that Jesus is coming back, very much evidence in these parables, is the notion that you, it is intended to encourage to activate a certain obedience, a certain response uh, to God. And it's the actual weight that allows our heart to be cultivated in the midst of the weight. This is what Peter picks up in his, um, his second letter in chapter 3. Peter writes... But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Right? The, the point here is this, when we talk about the return of Jesus, I believe that it's many. Uh, it, it, our default can often be, uh, oh really, this again? You know, we've been saying this for 2,000 years. We'll be saying it in 2,000 more years. You know, let's just move on to something more pertinent. And I want to challenge you that that's a very dangerous attitude, right? That you cannot, simply because you perceive that it may not have been fulfilled in the express timing that's laid down in Scripture, be careful. Because God's timing is, is sometimes such that it's meant to affect a certain response in you rather than to relate to you precise timing of anything. And certainly in Luke thirteen, right, here or twelve, what we're looking at, it's intended to uh, to cultivate our hearts in terms of obedience. And that is, you know, if there was no way, Jesus would just have to command you to love him, in which case you would essentially be a robot. Right? It wouldn't be a loving relationship at all. But because there's a weight, there's this period in which our heart is cultivated, which we refer to as sanctification, but that he woos us into deeper relationship with him. And so in that sense, the wait is a very beautiful, um, very merciful, very compassionate act on his part that we would be drawn into deeper relationship with him. So again, don't excuse thinking about how you're waiting simply because you think he should have shown up already. That's not the point. The point is that you would be very serious about how you wait so that when he does show up, you are ready. So with that question in mind, we can consider what does it mean to wait poorly, first, and then what does it mean to wait well? Why is waiting hard? You know, from a cognitive aspect, you just say, oh, if I really believe that Jesus is the Son of God and is coming back and will judge all things, then it's in my best interest to be obedient in all things. Right? It's a completely rational conclusion. Why would you ever be disobedient? It doesn't make any sense, except that our hearts are very fickle and in rebellion and not utterly cured and made soft. Um, And we've gotten worse and worse, if anything, at waiting. We live in a place uh, of immediacy in our lives, do we not? About 10 years ago, Pillars of the Earth was very popular, and there was a novel by Ken Follett that Oprah chose for her book club, and I picked it up. I didn't finish it, but it was interesting in the sense that it's a story about um, building the great cathedrals of the late medieval and early Renaissance periods. You know, these massive structures that were intended to give sense to people of the presence of God, His greatness, and lift them up kind of in this, the sense of His transcendence. And what struck me about reading that book at the time was that these people were sacrificing everything. I mean, they were, um, they were making all kinds of sacrifice of, of career or money or changing the orientation of a town and moving things and making deals that cost them to get certain supplies that they needed. To, uh, to erect these great cathedrals. Um, now, the thing that surprised me about that was not simply the sacrifice, but as they were beginning this project, no one who was beginning the project would live to see its completion, right? It would take 120 to 150 years to build a cathedral. So those who began the project uh, did so because they thought it was good and beautiful and would be a blessing to Uh, to the people and would be glorifying to God, but would never actually get to enjoy it. And I couldn't help but think to myself at that time, we've lost that. We've lost the ability to labor on something that's so expansive that it goes beyond our time frame, beyond our life, right? To be willing not to see the fruits of that, but to labor for it anyway. Because we live, you you can be on the other side of the world in 20 hours, you can order any product almost in the world and have it delivered to your doorstep. You have untold amounts of knowledge uh, available at your fingertips, right? Libraries that the history of the world has never contained, you have access to through your computer, right? The, the immediacy and the expanse of knowledge is, is overwhelming, and so it makes it hard in terms of, of waiting for something. right? To really be patient and to think, um, why is it a good thing to exist in a place where my, my fears and my desires and my anxieties are not immediately being met, but instead I'm waiting upon someone so that they will be ultimately uh, met? The danger in this, the particular dangerous, I think, is demonstrated in verse 45. It's the third parable, and Jesus starts to describe what, uh, how the servants act in his absence. And in verse 45, he says, uh, But if that servant says to himself, My master is delayed in coming, and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. Interestingly, the, what, what's happening for the servant, right? The, probably a manager of the household, while the master is away, he is uh, beating the other servants and he's getting drunk. Now, those are the two, uh, what's being described here isn't necessarily as scandalous to a first century audience. Right? If you said the master of the house is beating the servants, they'd say, what else is new, essentially? Right? That's not what you're supposed to be scandalized. What you're supposed to be scandalized about is that the manager of the household has taken upon himself the prerogatives of the master. Who has access to the wine cellar? Only the master. Who has the right to beat the servants? Right? In the ancient world, they're considered property. The master does. The manager in the master's absence has started to act like the master and decided that I can do whatever I want in the house because the master is away. Not only is he doing whatever he wants, but he's demonstrating remarkable contempt, right, as he beats the other slaves, and he's uh, demonstrating a desire to escape in in terms of the drunkenness. It's almost a, a, a sort of panic, which I think we get in the sense that while our master is away, Jesus is not present physically, we exist in a dangerous place. We exist in a world that is unpredictable and often disappointing. We think, where is the master? And we get nervous. And we act in ways that don't honor the master, but we think that protect us, protect us in some capacity. So, you know, when you have that feeling, small or big, that the master isn't here and this is kind of a dangerous place, how, do you, how does that panic play out for you? How does that worry or concern flush itself out? So I thought about it a little bit this week. I, I came up with three, um, three notions that I think um, I see certainly in my heart and in other people's heart um, in terms of how we handle that, that worry, that fear when we start to really process that the master is not, is not present. The first one are those who would say, distract me. Just keep me distracted. So um, you know, I mentioned to you in this past, but I love this, this notion that in the 1930s, uh, J. Gresham Machen, who is, was a theologian of his day, uh, lamented that men could no longer be left alone with their own thoughts and that they must now be entertained at all hours and that the ability to process information and to think independently was being thrown out the window. And what he was referring to was uh, the new technology of placing a radio in a car. Now, what would he say today in terms of our opportunity for distraction? Right? That's almost 100 years ago. I wonder what uh, he would say. This idea of being distracted is also demonstrated in a place that we wait, which is the line of something where, um, uh, particularly by the impulse buy market. Right? So Americans on an annual basis spend something like 37 million hours in line but the impulse buy market is $5.5 billion annually, which means that a whole lot of people think a candy bar or a magazine is going to uh, to take away the lament of waiting in line, right? I need some Tic Tacs or whatever you're looking at as you're checking out. I have $5.5 billion industry, and we think that that will, um, will end our agony of waiting. But this, you know, you can think of different ways that this would play out. Are you one of these people who, in the midst of um, when things get quiet, or you feel a little unsettled, is your default to say, distract me? Right? Are, as Zach said earlier, are you always on your phone? Are you jumping online every time you have a moment? Right? This is one way that we handle the nervousness that the Master isn't present. But there's another way that some of us handle that nervousness, and that might be summarized as, I'm freaking out. I was trying to think of a place where I could really learn something about waiting this week and was looking at my bookshelf, and I, I came upon Unbroken by Laura Hildebrand. I thought, perfect. Right, talk about a, a picture of waiting. Unbroken, it was also made into a uh, movie. It tells the story of uh, Louis Zamperini, who, uh, amazing, remarkable story. One uh, Didn't win. Ran the Olympics in '36 before Hitler. Right? Went into World War II and was on a bombing squadron. Flew on the Green Hornet, which was a plane that went down during World War II. Long story short, three guys make it out of the plane onto two life rafts. And they, um, they're the longest, he holds the record of longest surviving uh, at sea and living to tell about it, right? something like 47 or 48 days wrote a chilling story if you haven't read it. It's really, uh, in many ways, a fascinating book. Um, but as the three men from the Green Hornet make it onto these life rafts, they're starting to take stock of what they have. And now, during World War II, Hershey's produced this emergency ration, which was an incredibly bitter chocolate. It was so bitter, you were, it was intended that you uh, would kind of have to force yourself to eat it so that you wouldn't devour all of it at once but it was incredibly calorically dense, right? So theoretically, you could survive on one square in the morning and one square in the evening, and this would last you some period of time. Well, the three guys are in the boat, and Phil is one of the guys, and he's pretty badly injured. He's laid up and in and out of consciousness. Mac is not injured at all, but he's freaking out. He's kind of losing it. He's, you know, we're going to die, we're going to die, we're not going to make it. You know he's mentally he's he's off the reservation a little bit, and Louis is trying to hold everything together. Well, they go to sleep the first night, and they wake up the next morning, and uh, Louis realizes that all of the chocolate has been eaten. That during the night Matt consumed everything, right? And this they're still thinking that they may be rescued in a day or two, right? But imagine how that plays out over forty-eight days of starvation when that one of the guys in the boat ate all the chocolate right off the bat. so um, But this is a picture of another way you get really nervous, right? I'm at sea. Nobody's coming for me. There's sharks surrounding me, right? Many of you have lived or are living in a period of your life where it feels just like that. Right? Like, this is my story, and I'm looking from horizon to horizon. I don't see God. And you freak out, right? You binge on something. You jump in. You say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. And you get to a place you say, yes, I'm going to do it. And I'm going to do a lot of it. Right? And that's another way that you navigate that fear and that anxiety. The last one is the notion of, right, first one's distract me. Second one, I'm freaking out. Third, lie to me. Tell me half-truths because the world in half-truths is, is more colorful than the world in, uh, in blatant truth. So... Uh, do you know who? Why, if you look at this world of, of the psychology of waiting or waiting science, right? There's one place where everyone says this is really the premier. You know, if you want to look at someone who's thought more about waiting than anywhere else in the world, you look at this place, Disney. Right. So Walt Disney was one of the pioneers. Uh, no one before uh, Disney apparently had done the snake line. Right, where a line turns back and forth on itself. Why? Because it's much harder to gauge the wait time in a line that snakes than in a line that is straight and goes out forever. He's also the first guy to lie to his patrons about wait times. Right? And then Disney still does this. And they, they're quite frank about it. They say, you're in a lot better mood if we tell you the wait for Space Mountain is 45 minutes, and you get there in 30. You're like, this place is amazing. They're moving things along. right?" I'm impressed, right? Well, you are only impressed because they they know exactly what your wait time is down to the second, right? They're just lying to you, right, to affect your psychology. And some of you, right, we like that. You know, it makes the world a little bit more navigable if you lie to me. You know, make the line snake, uh, tell me the wait is longer than it actually is, do whatever you want, right, I'd rather hear. And we, we do this to ourselves as well. You see this when you talk to somebody and you say, you're worried about a friend, a loved one, someone in the church. You say, how are things going? They say, oh, good, good. And you're thinking to yourself, there is nothing good in your life. Your life is a mess. It's all upside down. But they'll, they start to weave these strings around and try to make some piece of fabric out of what they have. And you just say, okay. right," Because it's half's truths and it's something that enables them to survive. Something that enables them to live in the midst of their frustration and their fear. But what we need to realize as we look at We see the servants waiting poorly, acting as masters of the house. And when we wait poorly, right? whether we want to be distracted, we binge on the wrong thing, or we want simply to be lied to, we wait poorly. And to the degree that we wait poorly and find life in these other things is to an equal degree right? that we are unfaithful to the master in his absence and to the equal degree that we will alienate ourselves from him and not find his joy and peace. So if that's waiting poorly, then what does it mean to wait well? What does it mean to be uh, ready for the return of the Master? At the end of the third parable, Jesus will identify those who wait well as those who know the will of the Master and do it. And those who wait poorly as those who know the will of the Master and don't do it. And what's interesting is everybody really knows you know, the will of the Master to greater or lesser degrees. When we talk about the will of the master and executing that will, I mean, often I hear um, things like, well, it's just, it's very complicated. It's very hard, you know, what exactly is God's will? And I don't, I don't, frankly, I don't buy that at all. You know, when we ask the kids, how would you be ready for mom and dad coming home? It doesn't take them two seconds to figure that out. Well, I could clean something up, right? I could, I could be nice to my sibling, I could do that chore that I was supposed to do. I could get a jump on my homework. I know what the will of my mother and father is. I know what honors them, and I could be busy about it or not. The difficulty isn't knowing. The difficulty is doing. And so when we tell ourselves that the difficulty is knowing, I think we're absolutely lying to ourselves. And we say, in our difficulty, I'm just too busy. You're busy because you've allocated your time in a certain way. You've made decisions, right? And as a result of those decisions, now your time is perhaps hemorrhaging, and you are out of it, right? But your busyness is a result of decisions you made. Or I don't have enough money. Well, in a few cases, that's true, but in the vast majority of cases, it's not at all. It's simply that you've allocated your money in certain ways, and so now you're stretched thin. Or I don't have. I'm just too tired. I don't have enough energy. Um, Perhaps. I tend to think that God gives us plenty of time and plenty of energy and plenty of money. And our feeling that we lack it is because we squander it. Because we use it in ways that aren't really in ways that honor the master, but ways instead that help our sense of panic and fear and desire to make this world uh, an easier place. What would it look like to embrace the Master's will? I think you are very equipped to answer this question, but just to think out loud and to challenge us to dream a little bit. If every family in the church gave up eating out once per month, just one time each month, we would have enough money, right? If that money was donated in the same direction, we would have enough money to sponsor 16 pastors in the deep, or I'm sorry, we would double the number of pastors we sponsor in the deep forest, and we could add 16 children to those who are being sponsored for just giving up one meal out a month. Right? We could do real, real things and make real change, and I think know a certain joy and peace because that the idea of Jesus coming back, you know when you're excited is when you've done something that you hope pleases the master. But when you're reluctant for him to come back, it's because what you're doing things that you think he's not going to be excited about or impressed with, and so you have a sense of shame or embarrassment. And I'm not excited for that return. Right? This is our call to embrace the master's will as we would shape our hearts, our minds, our lives to actually be ready for his return. And it's in this p- period of waiting right, that we make these decisions that I really want to challenge you with um, you know, as we're winding down here is the notion that this is God's grace to you. This is a period of time, the waiting, in which you can cultivate your heart to love Him for who He is. Not simply because He delivers a kingdom, not simply because He removes all your pain, but because He is God and the God who reveals Himself in incarnation and death on a cross. Not only that, but did you see how else... God reveals Himself in the course of these parables? Look at verse 37. Blessed are those servants whom the Master finds awake when He comes. Truly I say to you, He will dress Himself for service and have them recline at table, and He will come and serve them. That's ridiculous. That those servants who have waited well and meet the master upon meeting him and being invited into his feast, what happens? He serves you. He says, sit down. Recline. I'm going to wait on you. It's absurd. And yet that's the God in his humility that he would love us and welcome us in that fashion. He gives us a taste of that welcome at the table this morning. And as you come and are nourished, Will you be encouraged, but also will you challenge yourself? Where are you waiting poorly? Where are you distracted? Where are you freaking out? Where are you preferring lies to truth? Will you move away from those places and move toward Christ and say, Christ, I would serve You. I would wait well. And I would find My place where I delight Your return. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you, and though your weight is somewhat strange to us, your weight is difficult to understand in its entirety, it is not difficult to understand that you would want more of us and that you would grow us up in our faith and that you would give us opportunity to lay aside the things that we worship here and to move toward you. We thank you that you love us enough to grow us up in our love for you. Would you help us to not be children, but instead to mature? Would you help us to put away uh, the silly ways in which we wait and instead to really labor at knowing your will and doing your will? Your will is quite evident, and yet our doing is quite unevident. So would you help our doing to match our knowing and in that for us to be transformed and to draw near to you? Jesus, we love you because you have loved us but we would ask that you would increase our love for you and that that love might be manifest in obedience. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.